Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and I hope wherever you are around Australia, you are safe, you are free from flooding, and you are COVID free. It has been another huge week in Australian politics. And of course, if you haven't listened to our week on Wednesday live edition that Van and I did from the Melbourne Fringe last Wednesday, do check that out. You can check that out on our back catalogue. It is a live recording and it has all of the nuance and layers that a live recording would have. But of course, big news this weekend is the extension of paid parental leave. That's right, the Albanese Labor government, in its attempt to increase women's participation in particular in the workforce, but also to encourage more people to obviously become parents, continue to work, participate in the workforce, take the time they need to help raise their children, are lifting paid parental leave from 18 weeks to 26 weeks. It should be noted that Australia was, until this announcement, one of the worst countries in the OECD for the provision of paid parental leave. Guaranteed paid parental leave in Australia currently is 18 weeks paid at the minimum wage. There is an additional two weeks of dad and parent pay, as it's called, that is only accessible by the secondary care provider. Now, this is all going to change. This is all going to change. There will be 26 weeks of paid parental leave that can be shared across both parents available from 2026. There will be a step up. So there'll be an extra two weeks of paid parental leave from July 2024, and then the big jump of an additional six weeks to 26 weeks by 2026. And there are a lot of 26s in that sentence. It is interesting to remember, though, that this is paid at minimum wage. And what we know is the minimum wage has fallen behind average wages. And of course, we know that due to the gender pay gap, men's wages are even higher than the median wage. So we will likely see this scheme taken up predominantly by women. And there are some question marks about the equity of that arrangement. As we've discussed on this show and on the week on Wednesday many times in the past, Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the OECD. Obviously, we need to improve women's participation in the labour market uh, as we need to improve participation across all age brackets as well. However, However, we need to make sure that we don't inadvertently inadvertently create a situation where there is a perverse incentive for women only to stay home because of the way these programs are structured. Now, Sam Moyston, who of course is involved in the Women's Economic Council and Committee, as well as the Australian Council of Trade Unions President Michelle O'Neill, have both welcomed this announcement. but also said that more needs to be done and the detail around the implementation needs to be examined. That may mean adjustments in the detail of the program. Who knows? We have some time. And this is one of the great things that I'm certainly enjoying about having a Labor government is that there's 
very little in the way of knee-jerk policy announcements. There's a lot of forward planning, a lot of building for the future, a lot of adjustment here and big policy announcement to be implemented as we go. To me, that's a better form of government. Give people time to adjust, to build, and to implement properly. And I think insiders today, with Catherine King talking about the legacy of the former government that she's had to do a lot of work to repair, really highlights that difference. The Morrison government announced so many knee jerk programs, not only programs, but then announcements within those programs that really Catherine King, the Minister for Infrastructure, Regional Development, and a range of other key portfolios, has had to spend most of her time trawling through those announcements to see what's real, what's not, what's pork barreling, and what's actually worthwhile. And to give you some sense of the scope of this, Minister King, my former local member, uh, spoke about programs that were announced and then randomly throughout the election, programs that would be funded under those programs. Bridget McKenzie going around making strange announcements about various programs to be funded out of previously announced funds. Now, you might think, well, these are surely relatively small. The reality is they run into the billions of dollars and not just weird and strange, to quote Catherine King, programs that were announced and then re-announced or sub-announced, but also programs that were not fully funded. Everyone's aware now of the car park rorts of the Morrison government, but what I was not aware of until Minister King announced it on Insiders was that not only were the car park rorts entirely of rort, designed to shore up Liberal votes in seats like Josh Frydenberg's, many of those announcements were not fully funded. So not only was there money misallocated to things that were not needed, there wasn't enough money allocated. So in order to deliver on that promise, the promise of car parks for stations that do not exist, the Labor government would have to add in an additional billion dollars to that program. I mean, this is outrageous, outrageous misuse of public money. To have billions and billions of dollars funneled into what amounts to not just pork barreling, but straight out rorts. And of course, as we've discussed on the week on Wednesday in the past, Peter Dutton was up to his neck in this throughout his time as a minister. I think it was New South Wales Senator Tim Ayres who uncovered the defence contract that was given to the wrong company, a company with a slightly different name to the one it was intended for, a company that had no staff, no assets, and over the course of a number of years was given almost a billion dollars. That's right, a billion dollars. These are huge sums of money our money that the Morrison government wasted. 
Now, Catherine King has been going through this with the department with a fine-tooth comb, trying to identify what programs, what announcements, what projects have actual value and what are just straight-up rorts. Because let's be fair, we know that regional communities do need additional funding. We cannot hide from the fact that the ratepayer base of most regional communities can't sustain the upfront infrastructure costs of some key pieces of infrastructure, whether they be roads, whether they be swimming centres or leisure centres or gymnasiums or sporting fields. There are, there are needs in the regions that are different. Likewise, increasingly in many outer suburban areas of Australia as well. Now, yes, there is more that local government can do in the way that they set up their planning schemes, the way they make developers contribute to their community, and, of course, there's a role for state government as well. But at the end of the day, the federal government has the big wallet, and at the end of the day, some of that money should go to worthwhile projects in the regions and in outer suburbs. But that is not a license to simply hand out buckets of cash to friends, to family, to donors, to random companies. And of course, as I say, we know that this wasn't just about the regions. Dutton was doing this with defence. He was doing this with home affairs. It has permeated its way through the Commonwealth over the last decade of liberal misrule. What really struck me today on Insiders was Phil Curry's attempt to say that while it was all admirable that Minister King would go through and seek to deal with this pork barrelling, these rorts, these scams, these misallocations, the real structural problems in the budget were things like health, were things like aged care, was the interest levels on our debt, and the NDIS. In fact, Phil said something that I found quite offensive, and I'm sure many others did as well, judging by the reactions on social media. He said that everyone agrees that the cost blowout of the NDIS is off the rails and something has to be done. Well, I have to say, Phil, I don't agree with that particular take on the situation. I think the NDIS does need reform. I don't think anybody doubts that, whether they're a participant, a worker, a provider, or the Commonwealth or state governments. But we have to remember that the NDIS that Morrison has butchered is not the NDIS that was originally envisaged. If you go back to the foundation documents, if you go back to the quality and safeguard reports, you'll see how far the NDIS has drifted from its original intentions. One of the great things about Bill Shorten as NDIS minister has been his determination to return the NDIS to its original vision. The appointment of Kurt Fernley as chair of the NDIS goes some way towards symbolising that commitment. But it's not about cost. 
And this is one of the things that Phil Curry and the AFR in general seem to fail to grasp. The NDIS is an investment. It is us as a nation investing in our people to improve both their workforce participation, their quality and standard of life, and the capacity that they have and the people around them have to participate in Australian life. And in fact, we've seen that already. And a report that Dylan Alcott released shows that due to the NDIS, there has been a huge increase in the number of Australians living with disability who have gainful employment, a huge increase in the number of carers who have been able to get paid employment outside of their caring relationship. These are big, big changes. And in fact, per capita has analysed the NDIS and found that for every dollar we invest, we we return $2.25 to the Australian economy. Now, Phil Curry writes for the Australian Financial Review, and you would hope that he would have a better grasp of macroeconomics. You know, and this is why it's so important that Anthony Albanese and the Labor government continue to talk about paid parental leave and early childhood education as economic policies, because that is what they are. Getting the settings right on the NDIS is absolutely vital. It's so important both to the participants in the scheme, but also the workers who are delivering it, that it is structured appropriately, that the sham contracting Uber-style platforms are drummed out of the system, that employment is front and centre, that workers are able to build careers and participants are able to build support networks that allow them to participate in the broader Australian community through employment, through social interactions, and through just a generally improved standard of living. But it's not just the NDIS. When Phil Curry talks about the cost of aged care, we should remember that, again, these are our elders. This is part of Australia. These are Australian citizens. The level of investment that we make in these spaces is absolutely vital to improving and sustaining their standard of living. Now, can there be reforms in aged care? Undoubtedly. The Aged Care Royal Commission outlined many, many reforms that are needed, including reducing the reliance on privatised for-profit providers, providers who are themselves moving increasingly towards digital sham contracting for aged care in the home. In our family, we've recently been going through this process in New South Wales, where we are passed from one to another, and the concept of having choice means, in fact, total lack of control. We're given phone calls at random times by multiple people, offering essentially the same services, none of which meet the high threshold that we require, all of which are high margin back to the private provider themselves. These are micro details that, when combined together, 
add up to macro problems in the system. So I would challenge Phil Curry's assessment of the structural issues in the budget. They're not just about money. They're about how these programs are delivered, how these policies are executed on the ground. You know, and Catherine King made this point when she was talking about infrastructure. That one of the tasks she's had to do is actually look at what is possible to be delivered, how the pipeline of work would actually come about, and has found that many of the programs promised by the Morrison government simply were not possible to be delivered. There was a lack of skills, a lack of workers, a lack of available cash funding, a lack of appropriate partners for delivery. This is the big difference. Government's not about making a big announcement, handing off a novelty-sized check, sitting back and letting things just fall apart. It's about actual delivery. And while Phil Curry might think that the problem, in inverted commas, with the NDIS is how much it costs, I think a more nuanced, a more sophisticated analysis will show that the problems with the NDIS are about how it is delivered. It's about how it is regulated. It's about how quality and safety is primary to the delivery of those services. It's about how people with disabilities are at the centre, or not, of the programs, and about how the workforce is able to have some semblance of job security, career progression, and decent wages and conditions. Deal with those issues and that investment, that return on investment, that $2.25 for every dollar we invest, well, we might just realise that. We might even go beyond it. And that's the key difference. You know, a very stark example of the different thinking that gets applied to our forms of government is being highlighted right now in the UK. Ben and I talked about this on our week on Wednesday Live, the Liz Truss quasi Quatang mini budget and how it tanked the British economy. Of course, since then, quasi Quatang has been sacked by Liz Truss and really quite remarkable. They say that if the Prime Minister sacks you after 12 months, it's because you've done something wrong. But if the Prime Minister has to sack you within the first 12 weeks, it's because they've done something wrong. And clearly with Liz Truss, the quasi Quatang Liz Truss dynamic was toxic to the British people from the start. Billions of pounds lost, a self-inflicted economic crisis, and now Jeremy Hunt, a pro-Murdoch culture minister and anti-Doctor Health minister, is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm constantly talking about. The government that you choose and how it implements things is so, so important. You can have a government like the Albanese Labor government, where things like paid parental leave are delivered in consultation with Australian unions, for example. Another good reason to join your union, by the way, 
You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join your union right now. Hopefully, you're already a member, but if you haven't already joined, join now before you get to work on Monday. The Kwasi Kwarteng experiment in the UK cost people their homes, their jobs, their pensions, and billions and billions of pounds. The details matter. How government interacts with the people, with the stakeholders, with groups of interest matters. Morrison, the Morrison government didn't interact with unions and workers suffered. The Albanese Labor government is interacting with unions and we've already seen increased support for early childhood education, which facilitates people being in the workforce, increased support for paid parental leave, which facilitates people being in the workforce, a rise in the minimum wage, which of course lifts the wages of working people. We've seen increased support for the public sector where there'll be more jobs in the public sector, less reliance on multinational consultancies. These are all things that have been done by consulting with the key stakeholders, the workforce. And we are seeing, of course, in the NDIS and in aged care, steps towards reform that will improve the outcomes for the participants, whether they be our elders, whether they be Australians living with a disability, whether they be workers in aged care or workers in the NDIS itself. All key things. Now, Jeremy Hunt will be the Chancellor of the Exchequer, effectively the Treasurer of the United Kingdom, and we have seen his record before. The first time ever, the first time in 40 years, junior doctors went on strike when Jeremy Hunt was the Minister for Health. He was Chair of the Parliamentary Committee oversighting Boris Johnson's response to COVID. It'll be interesting to see how he intends to pull the UK out of its many, many self-inflicted economic wounds. Look, I don't hold out much hope. I don't hold out much hope for a Conservative UK government led by Liz Truss and financially managed by Jeremy Hunt, but hopefully I'm wrong. It is on Wednesday. It will be a week until the... October budget. Speculation will continue to be rife. Until then, Van and I will discuss a bit of a preview for the budget and also the news of the week. Until then, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.